Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Sheila Gujarathi. Sheila is the CEO of San Diego-based Gossamer Bio. This company is an example of what I've lately started calling an elephant startup. Readers of Timmerman Report may recall this passage from a couple months ago. As far as companies go, startups have always been the church mice that you barely notice scurrying around. They might have an electric idea, the kind of thing too far out there to get past middle management at a real company with real revenue targets to hit. Stick it to the man, I'll do it anyway, the founder would say. So you rent a glorified garage, buy used lab equipment on eBay, live on vending machine food, and above all, pray for little shards of encouraging data. Swinging between hubris and despair, the founder would mumble to him or herself about hanging in there long enough so that the clouds might part and some big wheel venture capitalist might someday cough up a few million bucks to keep things going. Church mice, yeah. Today, in the post-2013 biotech boom, we see an altogether different species around every other corner. It looks more like an elephant. Here, you start first with big money and all the people you could ever dream of assembling. The opening chess moves are supposed to create some mystique, which attracts more smart people to at least think about working for you while simultaneously sending a message to potential competitors. Bumper sticker, don't bother. If put in the right organizational structure with the brilliant people where they don't strangle each other for credit, these smart people rowing in the same direction will one day assemble both a platform and a pipeline of products from said platform. A detailed business will even materialize over time. And with enough of these people on board, happy and able to put a roof over their head and their kids through decent schools, they will find a way to put the pieces together to adapt to a fast-changing environment, as all companies must. Gossamer, as I said, is one of these latter elephant startup companies. It was co-founded by Sheila and Fahim Hasne. They were the dynamic duo that led Receptos until it was acquired by Celgene for a little over $7.3 billion in 2015. They created value there with an oral drug for multiple sclerosis with a mechanism unlike other drugs on the market. Building off that success made raising money a little easier this go-round. Gossamer received an initial shot of $100 million in venture capital so that it could go out and assemble a pipeline of drug candidates. First came the money, then, hopefully, comes the data. Sheila is an MD by training, and she grew up in a family where that was definitely the expectation. She had some crucial early career experiences at Genentech and Bristol-Myers Squibb before she made it big as an executive at Receptos. And from that set of experiences, you'll hear how her philosophy of company building has emerged. Now, before we start the episode, I have a couple of announcements. Please check out the Seattle Cancer Summit on May 10th. This is an event I'm organizing to raise money for cancer research at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center. Steve Haar of Sana Biotechnology, Chad Robbins of Adaptive Biotechnologies, Charlotte Hubbard of Gates Foundation Venture Capital, and Raquel Bracken of Venrock are a few of the awesome speakers and doers who will be in the room. Go to the events page on timmermanreport.com for more information on how to register. And... 
while I'm happy to use this podcast platform to raise awareness of my charity activities, I do need to pay the bills. This show needs a sponsor. If you are a premier biotech organization, you like the idea of getting your name in front of 3,000 highly engaged biotech leaders who listen, and you're willing to pay a minuscule amount of money to keep the long run on the air, then let's talk. Email me at luke at timmermanreport.com. Now, join me and Sheila Gujarati for The Long Run. So, Sheila, I, uh, I would like to let the listeners know before we get started a little bit of uh, why you're here. Um, so, you just took Gossamer Public, uh, San Diego-based biotech company, working on uh, a variety of immunologic conditions. Really interesting. You're also clearly young, rising star, woman of color, uh, first-generation immigrant, and importantly, not someone that has ever really sought out a lot of attention for yourself, uh, certainly with me. I think you and I, in fact, only have met in passing maybe once uh, at a J.P. Morgan meeting when um, you were with Fahim Hasnain, uh, your partner at Gossamer, uh, then you were at Roseptos. And it was one of those meetings where, you know, the CEO does most of the talking. And, and I didn't really get to know you. But now you're the CEO. So I want to hear from you. Well, that's great. Well, thank you so much for this invitation and opportunity. I really appreciate it. And, you know, one other thing I forgot to mention is that uh, you also represent something of a trend in the industry, which uh, I like to refer to as the elephant startup. <laughs> and that is you raised uh, $100 million out of the gate from Arch Ventures and some other prominent VCs who've known you for years uh, before you even had a whole lot of assets or a whole lot of data. Um, and, you know, I think some biotech traditionalists may sniff at that, like it's kind of putting the cart before the horse. Um, but um, it says something about the, the time of opportunity that we have in science. There's lots of opportunities and not that many really proven management teams. So it changes the bargaining dynamic between labor and capital. Um, so you've, you've been able to bargain quite well and, uh, and get your company off to a good start. And now you'll be judged based on, you know, what kind of results you're able to get in the clinic. Yeah, that's exactly right. This is a different business model for a startup and um, really core to what I wanted to build along with Fahim's partnership. And uh, very excited to tell you more about what we're trying to build at Gossamer to really create a next generation innovative biopharma company that's sustainable. So we have a big ambition, a uh, big vision. We have a saying here, go big or go home. Uh, but we, of course, we want to be prudent and uh, be successful if we can. So um I, I agree, it is a different business model. And I think this is a special time in our industry that allows us this opportunity to actually build this kind of model as well. And we have some very exciting programs that we're working on, both in the clinical and the research state arena, that um, I'd be happy to talk to you about. But um, I'm just so pleased to be given this opportunity uh, with the support of some great investors. Great, Sheila. Well, we will get into the strategy at Gossamer and some of the programs that you've assembled. Uh, but as you know, I like to uh, get to know the person on this show from the, from the get-go. So tell me about your story. Um, where do you come from? Where were you born and raised? Yes, yeah, so I am a first-generation Indian immigrant. Uh, I was born and raised in the United States uh, on the East Coast, born in Delaware, Delaware and uh, raised in New Jersey. Um, I come from a family of physicians, uh, so both my parents are doctors, um, 
And they came in the 1960s when there was a shortage of physicians here in the U.S. And that's how they got their visa to come over um, and, and practice and settle down in America. Um, and in some ways, I had that traditional immigrant experience. Um, you know, there was a big cultural gap, as you can imagine, um, with different uh, sets of values and perspectives on things. Um, and so you're navigating that and learning how to incorporate the best of both cultures. Um, you know, it's really amazing to be an Indian American and to take the best of uh, values and, and cultural aspects from India as well as as well as the U.S. And so. That was all very positive, I think. And you have siblings? I Sheila? do. I have a younger brother who's also a physician. So we're all physicians. <laughs> well, it really runs in the family. Uh, was that something that they, uh, your, your parents instilled early on that they, they wanted you to go into medicine? Yes, it was. In fact, I was told I had to be a physician. So I actually didn't really have a choice. <laughs> um, and that's what was told to you in, in those days. Um, and that, you know, the perspective of being a physician. Um, of being of service, of taking care of patients, and also the honor it is to be a physician and how important it is in the Indian culture, I think are, are very strong values. Um, and that it represented a way for them to um, be successful in the U.S. and leave India. And uh, my mother especially came from a very uh, poor family, um, and there was really no middle, middle class there at the time. So this was kind of representing a way to have a good quality of life um, in addition to Hopefully, you know, being a, a, a great uh, citizen and, and and performing good service for people. So, very deep um, cultural and uh, you know significant values in terms of being a physician. Uh, so that that runs deep in our family. Now, you said your parents were both physicians, um, and that you were on the East Coast. What what kind of physicians were they, and and where did you uh, actually get settled down? Uh, so, my father was a psychiatrist, and my mother is a pediatrician. Um, and we settled down in south, uh, southern New Jersey. Um, I actually grew up in a rural farm town. Um, and that's a little bit where some of my challenges were when I was growing up, uh, in addition to just the immigrant experience. Unfortunately, I had some other uh, challenges and hardships uh, along the way that I think really have shaped me uh, in terms of who I am as a person today. Um, so... Uh, Rural farm town. Um, I don't know if you know, but I'm from a rural area, southwestern Wisconsin, a small town of about 10,000 people. And uh, hearing you tell that story about the Indian immigrants who are physicians, I mean, we had a family like that in my school. And this is a small school, but they were, they were just like this. Uh, Indian immigrants who came to southwestern Wisconsin, this rural area, I think they had three kids, and they all did well in school. And I, I mean, I... I don't know uh, what their experience was was all like, but um, what what was yours like when uh, growing up in a in a small town rural? Yeah, place? it was it was tough. Um, you know, it was you know to try to integrate into that that small town um, atmosphere and environment. Uh, I did face a, a significant amount of discrimination, and so did my family. Um, so that was unfortunate. Um, my mother actually uh, had a private practice as a pediatrician. Uh, in the in the town, and so uh, there were a lot of uh, patients who knew her and families that knew her and really respected her, which was great. My my father was practicing at a psychiatric hospital, um, and so that was a little tough. And um, and also, uh, my father was quite sick. So pedi- pediatricians, I mean, everybody loves pediatricians. So I would imagine, like, she must have made some some good relationships through that. Uh, but what what kind of discrimination did you encounter? 
Yeah, unfortunately, uh, you know, there was just some uh, isolation. And uh, at one point, uh, a group of um, children wrote, Indians go home on our sidewalk and uh, really, really felt us, made us feel like outsiders uh, in in that neighborhood. Um, So we actually ended up leaving and moving to a larger town that was more cosmopolitan and diverse. Uh, But those were some of my formative experiences. um, And I think it really made me a, a compassionate person. Um, and so I think there were some very positive, uh, you know, lessons learned along the way um, in terms of, you know, trying to be non-judgmental and, and be a compassionate, empathic person um, because of some of those experiences when you don't feel welcome or included. Wait a second. Well, I mean, when somebody writes that, that kind of message, that's, that's pretty disturbing. Do you remember how your family reacted to that? Yeah, it was very sad. It was a sad day for us. Um, but I think we're pretty resilient. And um, so we, you know, kept going. And as, as you said, my mom was very well respected in, in the community as a physician. So that was a, a very positive, uh, you know, thing for our family. Um, and she's a great doctor. So a lot of really, um, you know, people who were supportive of us as well. But uh, you make the decision to move uh, to a new a new community. How old were you when that happened? That was when I was around 10. So the first 10 years of my life were kind of in this suboptimal neighborhood. Uh, But uh, then we moved uh, to Cherry Hill, New Jersey, which was, again, a much more diverse uh, area and and a a positive, um, much more positive kind of place to grow up. Cherry Hill, that's suburban Philly. Um, Suburban Philly, South Jersey. (laughs) What kind of schools were you going to? Was it public or private? All public. I'm a public school kid. So um, great public schools in New Jersey at that time. Uh, Really had a terrific education. Okay. So um, I guess, uh, you know, mom and dad are expecting you to become a physician. Um, I guess they're making sure you do your homework and, you know, getting good grades and all that. Absolutely. Um, and then the other major challenge I had just in terms of a shaping factor in my life is that my father was actually quite sick. He had his first heart attack when uh, he was 37, so at a quite a young age, um, and I was only three. Um, so he mm. actually almost passed away then. And then he was pretty sick growing up, so my mom is very strong and really had to take care of the family. And she's also the matriarch of her family, so she was bringing over a lot of her family from India and sponsoring them and helping them to settle down into this country, uh, which uh, you know was a lot of a stress on the family, but obviously very important to really um, to help all these individuals have a great quality of life here. Um, and then, unfortunately, um, you know, my father passed away when uh, I was sixteen. Um, he had another massive heart attack and died very suddenly. And so I didn't really get to say goodbye to him. I didn't have any closure about that. And so that was quite abrupt. And so that really taught me some other lessons in life around how transient life is and how every day counts. I think it really underlines, you know, what kind of driver personality I am, uh, trying to make the most out of every day and, um, you know, trying to make a difference uh, for patients and uh, really just being of service. Um, the other aspect is my father was a very important role model for me in that he was very spiritual. He grew up uh, studying the Vedas, which are these ancient scriptures um, underlying the philosophy of Hinduism uh, in India and um, Eastern religion. Uh, and uh, he really passed that along to me as well. So 
while I had some unfortunate life experiences that really did change my perspective completely and how I view the world, um, it also, there's a lot of strength that I I was able to get from uh, really following his path and studying these traditions and uh, really taking that spiritual path as well. Really um, sorry to hear that happen to you at such a young age. you know, one of the past guests on this show, Julia Owens, had a similar experience when her dad died as a, when she was a teenager. Um, you, you hear a lot of the, these kind of stories from people who end up devoting their life to medicine or, or to advancing medicine through biotechnology. Um, so, so you're you're growing up in this um, this extent large. Uh, well, you have a family that's uh, led by your mom at this point. You're coming through high school. Um, what was your What was your next big move? You decide you're going to go pre med straight away. I mean, this was all very clear, um, no doubt. Yeah, you know, I, as I said, I was there was a very significant expectation that I became a physician, and of course, I wanted to become a physician. I didn't really know anything else or any other careers, um, and I thought. You know, studying medicine and and really trying to help patients and patients' families were the most important thing that I could do with my life. And so, uh, at that time, um, and keep in mind that I was also grieving, if you will, because I think losing my father so abruptly, you know, it is difficult to make life decisions uh, in that state when you're trying to process kind of what is life about um, in in a very deep uh, existential manner. It's interesting you mentioned this, Sheila, because I think, you know, oftentimes we think of grief as, you know, something that we just go through for, you know, a week or so <laughs> with the, the wake and the funeral, and, and then we're all supposed to just kind of move on with our lives. But, you know, it's rarely that neat and tidy. It really isn't. It's, it's a lifelong process, um, dealing with loss. And so, and I, I do understand that well, and um, you know, there are waves that come and go and it does shape the, the way you think about, um, you know, life, uh, small decisions, big decisions, um, the, your, the purpose of your life and what you want to do, uh, you know, with yourself and, and how do you, what are your values? And so kind of in, thinking about all that at such a young age uh, was, was somewhat overwhelming, but it was also very meaningful. And so... Um, I actually chose to go into a seven-year medical program at Northwestern, and so it was a real honor to get in. They have a, a select uh, a, you know, group of uh, uh, high school students that they admit, especially outside of the state of Illinois. So I, I had gotten accepted into that school and, um, and to, into this whole accelerated uh, medical program. So I, I, I went and did biomedical engineering undergrad and then uh, went to the med- medical school. Um, and... Uh, it was a great experience, but actually in that in that time period, I ended up taking a year off and um, spending a year in India, living in an ashram, and uh, really that cemented a lot of my um, my spiritual uh, traditions, and so that that gave me a really strong va- foundation to do all the different things I ended up doing with my career uh, after after training. So that that was that was a real uh, that was an excellent decision I made. It was hard to leave. And take a, a gap year in medical school itself, but I'm so glad I did. Wait, so walk me through the timeline here. I mean, you go to Northwestern kind of on this fast track physician program when you're what, 17, 18? Yeah, I was 17. 
Uh-huh. And and then you you know you you take care of a lot of these basic requirements, the biology, the chemistry, anatomy and all that. Uh and then what year did you take your ashram? I took off like actually in between um like really in between my second and third year of med school. So you're coming out of your kind of required uh, studies and the, the, you know, the hardcore topics, anatomy, you know, phys- you know, physiology, pharmacology, and then you're going into the clinic, your clinical rotations. And so uh, at, during that time period, I thought, you know, it would be good if I really centered and um, you spend some time devoted to learning what these spiritual traditions were all about, what the Vedas were, were saying. So I took a year off and, and lived in the, in the south of India um, in this amazing valley, uh, surrounded by mountains, and had a, have a wonderful teacher um, who who taught me uh, these scriptures. And then I actually spent some time traveling throughout India. And then I came back and um, came back to finish my medicine and um, you know you know face life and 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 decide kind of what what are the different decisions I'm going to be making. But um, I, I really strongly encourage you know really all young people to see if they can find some time to find themselves um, and find what what's going to give them strength in their life. Um, I, it's something that's been so important for me, and it's set up a lot of practices that, that give me that strength and resilience and courage to, to follow my dreams. Um, and so I feel so blessed uh, by having that type of uh, foundation. And so it's something I always talk to younger people about, um, especially when they're Stress and don't know what to, what they want to do with their career. I always, you know, try to encourage them to to take the time to figure it out. What did your mom think of this? She was very unhappy. She was very unhappy with this decision. Um, she did not understand what I was doing <laughs> and uh, was a little concerned. <laughs> yeah, stick with your uh, fact, stick with your medical training is. Pro- I'm guessing what she was <laughs> thinking. You do. That's right. <laughs> yeah, she was. She was a little alarmed. Uh, by these decisions. Uh, so, but ultimately, again, supportive. Um, in fact, some of the teachers at the ashram were like, your mom's calling, we have to send you back home. <laughs> you need to go back and finish uh, your medical training and become a great doctor. So that was pretty humorous. But you came back and uh, it sounds like you were rejuvenated. You finished uh, your your MD there at Northwestern. And then what? And then I, uh, I placed an internal medicine at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, I was so thrilled to to train there. I, one of the key principles in my life has always been to try to find great people to train with and great companies to train with and, and learn from. And so um, I was very focused on going to the Brigham. Um, I loved the medical training aspects of what I was going to learn there, but I also really enjoyed the culture at the Brigham. Uh, Marshall Wolf was a, was a residency director at the time, and he was such a phenomenal uh, teacher and clinician, um, and he really taught us as interns and residents to take care of each other while we're taking care of our patients. And he always would tell us, treat every patient as if that patient was your own family member, you know, your grandmother, your grandfather, your mother, your father, your sibling. And so um, that was a, a really uh, healthy relationship, you know, a healthy environment to train in because residency, of course, is very stressful. Um, so I, I I was so thrilled to to match at the Brigham and um, and so that that was great. Uh, spent some years there. I was going to say residency is not really known for that. It's no, known more for these ultra demanding twenty four hour shifts. <laughs> it's true. It's so it takes so much out of you. Um, 
But, you know, when you're post-call and your residents are helping you to write your notes and, and get you out of the hospital so you can get home and, and go, you know, get some rest, uh, and then, you, then they pass it on. So then you do that when you're a resident and you take care of your interns. I think it, it's just such a, a great environment to train. Um, and uh, with, again, super smart attendings and fellow residents. So I, I really enjoyed uh, my time there. Um, and so that was that was great. And then um, I ended up deciding to uh, go into allergy immunology. I really, because I wanted to do translational immunology research, I, I fell in love with immunology in medical school. And so that was really a, a driver for me. I did want to do oncology uh, when I was at the Brigham. I did a lot of oncology rotations and um, spent two months at the bone marrow transplant unit uh, working under Joe Anton and, and Richard Stone, who were just real pioneers in the field. I actually found that it was difficult for me to separate um, from taking care of patients, and they were so sick, and and of course they were dying, and uh, I found that very devastating. Um, so at the time, I didn't know if I could really separate, and, and I think it's because of this compassion and empathy I, I do feel uh, for for patients. I it was it was really hard. So. Uh, I, I knew then. Now, what was it about immunology that that caught your uh, that that gave you? The I just bug? love the science of immunology. I think it's so incredibly intricate and interesting. Um, the way that you know the body regulates and dysregulates, um, and the applicability of immune system regulation to so many different therapeutic areas. And I learn, you know, I really love learning about all the different immune reactions that occur in the body, and um, you know. And how fascinating it was, and I knew it was just the beginning uh, of this, uh, you know, exciting field. So I, I wanted to. Sp- well, you know, that's interesting. You mentioned that because immunology. I mean, you were sort of into it, and in, I guess this would have been the '90s before immunology was like super cool, like it is today. Um, I, I know you know Christina Burrow from Arch Venture Partners. She was at an event I did just last week where she uttered the phrase, uh, uh, a total Silicon Valley thing to say, you know, software is eating the world. Actually, now immunology is eating the world. <laughs> so this is a good thing for you to be really learning about in depth, you know, 20 years That's ago. right. Yeah, no, again, great. Um, some, some of the, for, you know, fortunate decisions in terms of focusing on that area of research. And so um, I decided to, uh, I also decided to move from the East Coast to the West Coast so I went over to the Bay Area, and I, I did a. I was doing my fellowship at UCSF and Stanford, and that was a real eye-opening experience for me, because uh, when I was training in Boston, there was really no, uh, you know, d- openness or discussion about ever leaving medicine and going into industry. That that was something that you know was very much frowned upon. You know, we were training in the ivory towers. Um, that's something that you know was was something very foreign. But when I went to the Bay Area, it was a completely different environment. Uh, there was so much, uh, so many entrepreneurial uh, clinicians. Um, there was a, there was some more interaction between industry and academics. Um, and well, wait, wait for just a second. What brought you? What brought you to UCSF and Stanford in the first place? Yeah, it was just you know my desire to kind of uh, spread my wings and uh, leave, you know, leave the East Coast. And and I thought you know a lot of a, a few of my attendings had were telling me that, um, you know, they were trying to explain the different environment of, of the Bay Area and that they thought I would really enjoy it. So I had this opportunity to um, to uh, really move there and do my fellowship there. So I thought that would be a great, you know, a great move to make and uh, something to learn from. It was a little hard 
to think about leaving the Brigham. Were you thinking that this would be the step, the key step before becoming like a, a board certified, uh, I don't know, allergy specialist or something like that? Yeah, I thought this was I thought this was going to be my life that I would, um, you know, really do translational immunology research uh, in allergic di- disorders, rheumatology disorders, um, immune deficiencies. That was really what I was uh, thinking that I was going to be doing at that time. Um, you know. Okay, so you go to the Bay Area and you quickly realize, well, actually, there's this whole other world out there with uh, like industry and and collaborations that are not, you know necessarily the dark side. Yeah, and a number of my, uh, the volunteer faculty attending uh, we had at UCSF and Stanford were actually working in industry. And so it was great to uh, have that exposure to them um, and how happy they were and what kind of innovative uh, science they were doing in clinical trials and uh, really drug development. Um, and it was also coupled with the fact that medicine was going through some major changes at the time with managed care and there were a lot of disgruntled physicians. And so, um, and actually one of my clinics was shut down um, and, you know, a long time uh, academic researcher who very well known in the field actually lost his clinic. Um, so that was pretty devastating for him. So I was actually also observing kind of the business of medicine and the economic drivers. And at the time I really thought, well, I will. I want to understand that more as well. I really want to understand more about the ecosystem. What were the financial drivers uh, behind the practice of medicine? Because, um, you know, I wanted to help influence that as a physician and not just be told what to do. And so, uh, you know, one of the hardest things I've ever done and the, one of the you know hardest decisions I've ever made was actually to say uh, that I was going to leave uh, medicine and, and try something else for a while so that I could, you know, try to have a bigger impact in the world. Um, and, and I always wanted to be aligned with the identity of being a physician, but the whole idea of being a physician executive was exciting to me. Um, and I started exploring different career opportunities then, and I actually decided to do something I'd never imagined doing, is, which is um, leave uh, my fellowship and actually go be a consultant at McKinsey um, and do... Okay. Okay. So this is a big, big change. As you've explained earlier, like this was all part of your grand plan in life from the time you were a toddler, pretty much. Uh, your mom is probably not too happy about this again. Like you're, you know, as a physician, you know, you get to impact lives one at a time, generally. Now a physician scientist gets to do some lab work too, and maybe advance the field that way. But now you're thinking along totally different lines. Um, That's right. How did this go over with your family and, and your and your uh, fellow colleagues? It was very difficult. Um, and again, it was, you know, I, I you're right. I, it was not something I anticipated. I, I really thought I was going to be doing uh, clinical research. I um, had these other set of plans. And it's interesting how the twists and turns that we face in life, you know, and, and how we have to be open to these different opportunities. Um, and I couldn't imagine ever leaving medicine. And here I was, you know, thinking about not only leaving, but going to a completely different type of, um, you know, having a different experience within business. And business was something that was really foreign to me at the time. Um, no, it I didn't mean, go McKinsey. over well. What, what, did your, what did your mom say when you said McKinsey? She said, what's that? What, what are you talking about? <laughs> 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 You're ruining your life. <laughs> And I also had a number of attendings who, who told me I was making a big mistake. Um, and so it was something that was, uh, it was, again, uh, 
having the courage to learn more about it. And as I learned more about it, I got really excited about it. Um, it was a lot of analytical problem solving and um, at being having an engineering background, I really enjoy that. And I hadn't, you know, sometimes medicine can be more algorithmic and, um, you know, you, it, you do become, you know, you have some mastery skills in, in medicine and, you know, more on pattern recognition. And of course, the scientific aspects of clinical research and, um, you know, basic science research is, is very different. But, um, but yeah, so I really was enjoying learning more about what I could be doing as a consultant. And I had some other peers um, who were residents uh, who had made that move and I learned about it from them. Uh, but yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a scary decision. It was one of the scariest decisions I've made. But no, this is kind of a classic on-ramp for a lot of people to get into industry. You work as a consultant, you get to know a lot of different companies with a lot of different kinds of problems. You build your network, you, you, you know, you're exercising all kinds of synaptic pathways that maybe you didn't in medical school. Uh, probably not a lot of people end up leaving after a while because, you know, you're not really implementing. You don't own a lot of these problems. You want to make a bigger impact, you got to go inside a company. Is that kind of how you were thinking? Yeah, I mean, it was such a new experience to me, and I had no idea all the different skill sets I would be learning at McKinsey. And so you do learn a tremendous amount around communication, project management, analytical skills. You work with leaders across all the different, uh, you know, Fortune 500 companies across different industries. I was working with big pharmaceutical organizations, e-healthcare startups, payer provider networks, um, just a, you know, just a tremendous amount of exposure with these small teams of incredibly bright people. I actually was um, very lucky to actually work with Bruce Booth on one of my programs and Jeb Kuyper and just great people um, again um, and and just learning from all the partners at the firm. And it, it was it's such a great exposure to, to healthcare in general. I, I always focus on healthcare um, and you get trained along the way and um, it, get, it opens your world up to understanding how many possibilities are out there for you and that, you know, you don't just have to practice medicine. You can do other things with that medical background and applying that medical background. And so I spent time looking at all these different healthcare kind of industries and thinking about what I did want to do with my career, but I kept coming back to the fundamental aspects of doing translational immunology research and really trying to create medicines for patients and, uh, and then I decided I, I wanted to work at what I thought was one of the best companies uh, out there. And so I was really keen on joining Genentech uh, and moving back to the Bay Area. Now, what year was that? So that was uh, 2002. Okay, 2002. Now, you were in the Bay Area this whole time from no, Fellowship actually, and, and no, McKinsey? I, I actually oh, no. left um, the Bay Area and went back to the East Coast, and I was in the New Jersey office, uh, to the New Jersey and New York okay. Office that was really the the hub for healthcare consulting for McKinsey, so I went back there. Okay, so you come back to Genentech, two thousand two. Now this is, um, I guess, Herceptin and Rituxan would have been on the market, uh, the kind of first generation antibodies that were just kind of moving up the growth curve, proving that monoclonal antibodies were real drugs here to stay. But you know, this is like the beginning of Genentech entering its glory years. Um, what was that experience like for you? That was phenomenal. It was really during the formative years for me in the biotech industry. So to be able to work in that type of company with such high quality science, um, really, you know, first in class medicines, 
Um, as you probably have heard from many of us ex techers, you know, changing the textbooks of medicine, rewriting the textbooks, focusing on the patients, uh, focusing on the science, working with uh, role models such as Hal Barron and Sue Hellman and David Shenkine, it was really amazing. Um, so it was a significant growth uh, when those years I was there. And I was able to work on a number of immunology programs. Uh, and then I also had the opportunity to work on Avastin, which was, which again was amazing. Um, you know, at the time, Avastin had about a $300 million development budget uh, in and of itself. And we were looking at, you know, 30 plus tumor types and all different lines of treatment. Um, and it was just, uh, it was just, you know, again, rewriting the textbooks and, and trying to figure out, you know, how to, um, you know, increased survival for these, these all these different cancer types. Do you like listening to this podcast? You can show your support in two meaningful ways. One, you can sponsor the long run and reach 3,000 biotech leaders in an immersive listening experience every other week. Another simple alternative is to subscribe to Timmerman Report. An annual subscription costs $149 a year for an individual. When you subscribe to Timmerman Report, you get a steady stream of in-depth insights every week. Not only will you get a proper license to read my writing, but you can read articles from a talented cast of contributing writers. Stacey Lawrence, Leora Schiff, Asher Mullard, Alex Harding, and others. I edit these people, and I pay them in U.S. currency because their writing has value. If you work at a company that has more than one reader, you can purchase a group license to share this valuable content in compliance with copyright law at a 10% discount. About 70 organizations, from pharmaceutical companies to universities, have purchased these group licenses. They renew at about a 96% annual renewal rate. That is unheard of reader loyalty in this business. This is journalism worth paying for. You want to know more about what you're missing? Ask me at luke at timmermanreport.com. Okay, so so Avastin, um, that was an, uh, the next big success story in cancer, but not really immunology. Um, certainly wasn't viewed in that lens at the time. But there were other, I, if I wrap my brain here, um, it was Raptiva, Zolaire, or no, I'm, I might yeah. be thinking of something else. But no, absolutely. There, were, there were some immunology programs that didn't really work out, right? Well, I, you know, I started actually my career at Genentech on Zolaire um, and Rituxan and then Ocrelizumab. Um, which, uh, as you know, became Ocrevus and MS. So I was, um, I did yep. a lot of post-marketing work for Zoller, and that was a very difficult launch. Actually, pretty formative for our lead indication here at Gossamer. Uh, that's a, a small molecule for asthma and allergic disorders, targeting the TH2 pathway. Um, so that was, uh, yeah, that was one of the programs. Rituxan, really understanding a B-cell directed therapy, NCD20 directed therapy for autoimmune indications. Um, and then I was a development lead for Urkeluzumab, uh for across all autoimmune indications, but really uh, putting down the, the initial plans for MS, uh, learning from the Rituxan proof of concept trial. Um, and, and that's been, it was so great to, to see that those uh, trials work out. Did spend time working on Raptiva as well, exploring other indications for Raptiva, other B-cell directed therapies such as anti-bliss or anti-bath. Um, and so it was just, a, it was just a tremendous time. We got to do so much in that time, work in on programs from pre-IND, phase one, two, three, up to post-marketing. And uh, at the time, you know, 
all the clinicians were in the same group and we used to just work on different programs. So you got a tremendous amount of experience um, if you would work on three or four projects at a time. And um, so that was a, a great experience for me. So most of my time at Genentech was in the immunology area um, and, and exploring um, all these different disease areas uh, there. Um, but I, then I did. Interesting. Yeah. So you were there something like uh, six years, five, six years, I think. Uh, and what was your next move after that? So then I got recruited to join uh, Bristol Myers Squibb. Um, and that was a, a very interesting opportunity. Um, basically, uh, Brian Daniels and Elliot Siegel and the leadership team there were uh, very interested on uh, developing a biopharma vision for, for BMS. Um, they had, you know, downsized uh, the company. Uh, the you know that the BMS leadership team was about twenty thousand or thirty thousand, uh, you know, employees. So still quite large, and obviously much larger than Genentech, that was very U.S. focused. Uh, but they they had a very strong immunology pipeline, and so I had the opportunity to be the therapeutic head for immunology there, and really bring the bio part of biopharma coming from Genentech uh, to that culture. And so I, I, uh, so I actually made the decision to, to move back east, uh, be near my family, and, um, and take on this opportunity and uh, ran uh, programs such as Orencia, uh, which is, uh, you know, a CCLA 4IG uh, across a number of different uh, autoimmune indications. Uh, the, you know, the lead was uh, rheumatoid arthritis, both IV and sub-Q formulations. I took Belatacept, which was a second generation uh, uh, you know, molecule targeting CCLA um, 4IG again uh, into transplant, renal transplant, um, in terms of uh, getting that drug approved in the U.S. and Europe, and uh, did that advisory committee, and then we had a great pipeline of immunology directed therapies, and and then uh, was really helping out on the immuno oncology side, really thinking about some of the adverse events that these patients were experiencing, and starting to get you know that was really the beginnings of IO there. Well, okay, so just so I have my dates correct. You went to BMS, I think this was 2009, is that right? Yes, it was 2008 through 2011. That's 2008. When, yeah, that's when I was at So BMS. this would have been right before or right around the time BMS acquired Metarex, which, you know, we now look and say, wow, that was the fateful acquisition of the CTLA-4 and the PD-1 antibodies. I mean, really transformed Bristol-Myers um, as a company. It's true. I was actually part of the diligence team uh, looking at Metarex, especially for the immunology, uh, the, the, the non-oncology program, so on the immunology side. So incorporating and integrating the Metarex portfolio, um, as well as, you know, again, helping think through um, some of the other aspects on IO-directed therapies. Also gave BMS the, the platform technology, right, for making antibodies in a big way, uh, humanized or fully human. That's right. And so, um, you know, continue to take the, the antibody uh, development, uh, you know, to the next level. Of course, BMS had a number of antibodies and protein therapeutics um, that, you know, they were, you know, really uh, grappling with, I would say, you know, learning how best to optimize the, the manufacturing and development of, of those, uh, those therapeutics and understanding how much value they could, they could create. And so that was great to be a part of that. We also did the Zymogenetics uh, acquisition at the time uh, when I was there, um, and actually the Alder deal, bringing in the anti-L6 antibody. So a lot of business development opportunities as well, um, as well as running the immunology uh, disease areas for the company. Okay, so 2011, you make another move, and this time you get an opportunity to join a startup. Tell me about that move. 
Part of that was personal um, to move back to California. And, um, and part of it was the decision to go to a real entrepreneurial environment, um, an environment where you, know, you can take risks and um, really you know, have a significant amount of leadership. And, and again, pull on all different aspects of, of my skill sets because I, I had a significant amount of business training as well. And so the opportunity to, you know, come in and, and be a chief medical officer at Receptos, be one of the early employees, build out that whole side of the house, development, regulatory quality, as well as interacting very closely with um, the, the, the chief scientific officer. Um, and of course, working with Fahima CEO and really establishing that partnership because we have great complementary skill sets seemed like a terrific opportunity. And uh, it, it turned out to be just, again, a, another wonderful decision um, and so much fun. Was Fahim, uh, Fahim Hasnain, for, for those who don't know, was the CEO at the time. And he had already been pretty successful at a, la- a couple previous stops. Um, he had been brought in Receptos. Um, now, I actually covered this company way back when from like Series A. Um, it was structural biology, like hardcore expertise coming out of scripts. Ray Stevens was a scientific founder and they were, they were looking to come up with like novel new drugs for immunology, right? So what was the, what was the sales pitch Fahim was making to you? It was really this uh, opportunity to come and build a a company with a whole pipeline of therapeutics um, that were going to be immunology focused. Um, at the time, uh, we had this, as you said, structural biology platform that we thought we could have really novel drug discovery and be able to address some of the, the mechanisms, uh, uh, the, the, you know, the intractable drug targets around GPCRs and um, you know, hopefully have novel ways to address those challenges. And they had an S1P receptor modulator um, in the clinic. And I knew a lot about that mechanism, was very excited about the promise of that mechanism across a number of different autoimmune indications beyond multiple sclerosis. Um, and so I, I spent some time understanding that that could be a differentiated molecule. Um, and also, you know, the applicability about, you know, exploring its, that mechanism across different um, diseases. And that that would just be the beginning. And then we would be building out a whole pipeline and portfolio. And um, that was very exciting to me. Now that molecule later became Ozanamod, and, and we can talk about that in a second. But you're joining a startup now. This is risky, right? Um, how many people were working there at the time, or how much money had it raised? Yeah, it was about 25 um, employees. So, you know, again, very small. Uh, they had done their Series A, but really had to continue their financing efforts, especially with me coming into the organization as, you know, I had some big ambitions for, for the clinical programs. I really want to do accelerated development. I want to take some risks, uh, but you know, well thought out risks, smart risks, hopefully. And uh, you know, I, I really like to work with the regulatory authorities to see how we can expedite development of, of drugs. It's, it's you know, again, time matters. Every day counts for these patients. Um, so we had to go, and so we had a lot of financing that we did have to do. Um, and so I immediately became very entrenched in the financing efforts. Um, you know, which was something that uh, you know I, I had some. Uh, insight into, but it was such a, that was a real uh, learning curve for me. So one of the great things about Receptos was that I I was coming into obviously a a core area of my expertise in terms of immunology, drug development, and understanding translational um, aspects of immunology. But the, you know, the novelty was, you know, being an executive, uh, understanding how to run a a small biotech and be an entrepreneur and everything around financing that we had to do, which 
ended up being a uh, Series B and then actually taking the company public in 2013. Um, and then three fallen fi- fallen offerings in 2014. So a lot of uh, a lot of learnings there on on how to you know really raise money for a small biotech company. So you've got a you know expanding set of responsibilities around clinical development and a team back at the ranch in San Diego, but also you know you're there side by side with Fahim in a lot of these meetings, first with venture capitalists and then with Wall Street, and and learning this whole other external facing side of the business. That's exactly right. And really understanding how important it is to align your financing strategy with your clinical development and your research strategies, because you do have to have important milestones, value inflection points for the company, ways and abilities to raise additional capital, to lower your cost of capital, um, and to be able to continue to finance your efforts internally, to have a mix of risk, to have a risk-balanced portfolio where you can um, have some higher probability of success on programs, um, as well as novel biology and and, and taking risks on, on more novel programs. So, um, and how to grow in a in a wise manner, um, to be judicious and risk aided. So there were so many learnings there um, about you know how to build a company, and probably the best uh, learnings at Receptos was really around the culture, and being able to build a culture, a high performance culture where. Uh, we felt that we were really thriving uh, and bringing our best uh, self to work every day. And that's something that really is critical to the Gossamer uh, mission and vision. Um, And I think that was a starting point for for me um, to understand how to be the authentic leader that I I want to be. Um, I had a lot of great leadership training in the big pharma companies at Genentech and and BMS. And I was able to start applying all of that um, in a way that, you know, I'd never imagined I could do uh, at Receptos. And so you know, I'm sure you've heard these things before, you know, check your ego at the door, you know, have a really constructive uh, working environment um, and be able to be nimble and entrepreneurial. And then it was really shocked me how much you could get done with small, nimble teams. I mean, how efficient you could be. Um, And so that was all very exciting. So just so many tremendous operational, strategic and cultural learnings at at Receptos um, that that were um, very, very rewarding. You can also get a lot done when you're not um, hoarding all the credit for yourself and you point uh, to the contributions of the team. That'll motivate your team. Absolutely. And it does. It takes a village. It takes a village to develop these drugs. Um, And uh, when you're at a small company, leadership counts at every level. Um, You know, you're only as strong as your weakest link, right? And everyone has to be a leader doer, uh, regardless of their position in their company. And in fact, leadership is independent of position. Um, We're all managing external vendors. It is a virtual uh, outsourcing model. We work with CROs, we work with CMOs, uh, we work with all types of research labs. Um, And so it's every, everyone is really having to perform at a pretty high level. And so for them to feel really engaged and motivated and inspired so that their energy level is very high and they're bringing their best self to work is, is critical. I love that you mentioned that part about the the leadership not being part of position because we too often and we in the media are often guilty of this. We look at, you know, a lead a leader is a CEO. <laughs> but that's not that's way too simple. There are all kinds of different kinds of leaders. Um and and I think you just hit it um there. So, um now uh Receptos. Um uh, eventually you you make progress through the clinic with the S1P receptor. Uh, the, the biotech market is heating up. So you got some wind at your back there. And then 
uh, you, you get the acquisition by Celgene, something like $7.5 billion. I mean, this is a huge screaming home run. Uh, what was that experience like? That was surreal. Um, that was really <clears throat> special. I mean, and, um, and we really thought Celgene would be a great partner and a great, um, well, a great acquirer, I should say, um, uh, given, you know, uh, what we thought about the culture and, um, you know, you know, what we thought they, they could be doing with the drug. So, um, so yeah, it was $7.8 billion acquisition and that was in, um, 2015. And, uh, you know, I think that, but the, I think the saddest part about it was really losing the team. You know, we had worked really hard to build up this great culture and environment and hire terrific people from all across the country um, and hand select these people to join the organization. And then, you know, we, kind of, we lost that. And so for me, I thought that was a real loss of value, you know, when, when we disrupted the team uh, in, that, in that manner. Now, how many people went went to Celgene or did, or or was this one of those classic things where they just pretty much take the asset and say, okay, we got it from here in clinical development. And then everybody else can all scatter to the wind and join other startups. No, they actually wanted the whole Receptos employee base. So everyone besides the executive team uh, were incorporated into Celgene. Um, It was a very important part of the deal that, you know, they were obviously doing the deal for Ozanamod for MS and IBD and potential other indications, but they were also very interested in the team um, that was uh, executing on these programs because of what we were able to do and, and the high quality talent we had put together. So, so everyone actually joined uh, Celgene and became Celgene employees um, um, as part, you know, with, you know, with this transaction and Except for the executives. Except team. for you and Fahim and a couple of other C level executives. You you know, you're off to do other things. I mean, I suppose you could <laughs> probably retire at this point. I mean, with that big of an acquisition. It's true. You know, at that point, you know, it's interesting what that type of success does for you individually, you know, in terms of motivating factors. I mean, you're working really hard in, in your career and trying to have these successful you know, opportunities. And, and, and then when you achieve that level of success, it's like, okay, wow. Um, it really makes you take a step back and understand what's truly driving you in your life. Personally, professionally, you know, what's important for your family because you have more choices um, and, and you don't have to work. And so, um, so it was, it was really, a, a, that was also a really great aspect in terms of that spiritual um, learning about, you know, motivation. And so for me, um, I did take some time off, and um, but I quickly realized um, how important it was for me to continue to be a contributor. We have a saying to be a contributor, not a consumer, and um, continue to serve patients and use all the skills I developed in my career um, and wanting to bring that stellar team back together again and, and develop a company that could truly be sustainable and innovative and that next generation biopharma company. Um, and also hopefully be a, a role model for, for women, um, to be a role model for my children, um, and to, uh, you know, I also have a saying, you know, use it or lose it. And, uh, you know, I, I definitely felt that I was losing it, you know, by not working. Um, so how, how old were your kids at this time of the acquisition? So this was, um, uh, in 2015. So, uh, my son was, um, around 10 and my daughter seven. Okay. So pretty young and you know you're definitely thinking about the the kind of role model that you are um I mom doesn't just like sit on the beach from here on out <laughs> um 
So, uh, and you stay in touch with Fahim, of course. Um, how, how did you two uh, end up putting the band back together again? Well, we actually decided pretty quickly, even the day that we were signing the agreement, uh, we all looked at each other and decided that it would be great to, uh, at least Fahim and myself for sure, that we wanted to, to do this again. It was so rewarding. We didn't know exactly when, how, what we were going to work on. But we did decide we wanted to continue our partnership and uh, and start another company. So um, so we we had that the thinking there, um, and then we spent some time over the next couple of years um, figuring out what the business model would be, uh, figuring out what the culture would be, um, thinking about the type of talent we would be bringing forward. Of course, the plan was now that I would be CEO, running the company, um, and uh, Fahim would be in that chairman role um, and that we would really try to build, again, that next generation innovative R&D engine, that biopharma company, I like to call it the biopharma sweet spot. Um, the platform was going to be primarily the talent and the people that we'd be bringing together, um, you know, from all different companies that we'd worked together on and working on a whole portfolio of therapies and really trying to be a sustainable company um, in a high thriving culture, not a culture of fear, but a culture where you know, you could bring your authentic whole self to work um, and really be integrated. What was the, what was the key difference here, thinking uh, between Gossamer and Receptos? Because it sounds like a lot of things are pretty similar. Yeah, I think it was again bringing it not to to just be working on one or two programs, um, which ended up being the case at Receptos. Although we had the ambition to develop a pipeline, here it was from the very beginning out of the gate we want to have a portfolio of therapies in the clinical stages as well as the research stages um, and have a, set up a business model that we really wanted to be sustainable. Because I do think, again, it, it's incredibly inefficient to lose your team. And I know a lot of small biotechs build up and then they may, may transact on their programs or the whole company and then they lose all that talent. And there's something about those longstanding relationships and the trust you build over time, the way you learn how to work with one another that is really invaluable. And so um, to, to have that sustainable model very, from the very beginning and to think through how we're going to set up this company um, and to, for the long run, I think has really, it, it, it puts a different lens on how you're developing your business. So those are some of the aspects. Now, Fahim is also a little, a little older. I think he's like 12 years older than you. Um, so there's a little bit of a generational change here. Um, but you were president and COO, I think, in the beginning, and he was... CEO, but then you made that change where he kind of moved upstairs to be executive chairman, and you became CEO. I think last summer, before you went on the road to go public, uh, what were what were the conversations like between the two of you about how to make that transition? Uh, well, it was uh, you know again very much uh, part of the plan uh, when we started uh, to decide to run this company. It was very much that I would be you know running it as CEO. So. These are all things that we had really spoken about and understood. And again, we have a, a strong partnership. So that was, that's really what, what we designed to do. So uh, all very, very positive and um, just a great opportunity for, you know, first for me to start focusing on the R&D side to really uh, build out the team, uh, to bring in the assets, the diligence of these programs and get those off and running and then fully step into the CEO role and, um, you know, take the company public. Okay, so you two are, are very much working side by side uh, from the start as co-founders. You're putting some of your own money as well as your sweat equity into this at Gossamer. Uh, you want to keep the 
the, the special sauce, that culture, the people, the relationships intact. Um, because, well, and I'm sure, of course, we should mention that, you know, you're watching your baby, <laughs> Ozanamod, uh, go off to Seljin and, uh, you know, they uh, had a notable uh, failure with the FDA. They, they cost them more than a year in, in development. Uh, I can't imagine that felt very good when you saw that news. Yeah, that was very unfortunate. And, uh, and I was, I was su- uh, very surprised. I uh, learned a lot about kind of what had transpired um, after that. Uh, but, uh, you know, drug development is very difficult. Um, and so, you know, and we had a very accelerated development plan. So a lot of studies had to be done uh, on the pharmacology side to continue to characterize the molecule. And so they had some unexpected findings and there were some delays. And so, I, you know, from what I understand, um, that was, uh, you know, that, that, that's the tough. I always say the devil's in the details. You have to be so vigilant on uh, running these programs um, and keep everything on track, keep everything moving uh, in time and, and then, of course, you have a lot of unexpected findings that you always have to, to problem solve and, and manage uh, along with very strong, uh, you know, regulatory relationships to, to get all that to done. So it's not for the faint of heart. Yeah. Um, so I was very dismayed uh, to hear that news. Um, I'm really hoping that the, the program's right back on track, especially for patients. But that was them. And, uh, you know, you can't spend a whole lot of time worrying about things that are outside of your control <laughs> if you want to get much done. That's right. Um, so, so, yeah, so you and Fahim, you've moved on now and uh, you raised, you now this comes back to what I said at the beginning of the show about uh, this kind of new model of startup, right? You know, now we're in a different time frame here, like well, seven, 2017, early 2018, so much interesting stuff going on in science and immunology, like your wheelhouse is like red hot. Um, so, and you two as, you know, like a proven dynamic duo are in a lot of demand. How, how did you, um, how did that change the way you thought about starting this company, financing this company? Yeah, well, I really wanted to come back to work to build a company of my dreams. And so to your point, I, it, it, there was a high bar for, for me in terms of what I was looking to create uh, along with Fahim. And, um, you know, I, you know I, and I'm very invested and committed to, to, to doing that here. And so, uh, you know, we really wanted to find a terrific investor, you know, group that was going to be supportive of this big vision we had of what we were trying to create because, um, you know, I'm hoping that we create something very special here and that's something that will last and that will help a lot of patients across many different disease areas. So, you know, we were very clear about our business model and what we were looking to do. And so to find a supportive group of investors was critical to us. And so that was what we really set out to do. And we were fortunate enough that we had a number of investors who did want it to work with us again, um, who were, you know, who had benefited from the work we did at Receptos, who we had great relationships with, who knew what we were about. Um, and I all about cl- the clinical development of these programs, you know, and translating great scientific uh, discoveries in- into, um, you know, these clinical trials and helping patients. And so that's really what we, we love focusing on. And so that was, we set out to kind of have those, those conversations. We were also uh, putting together our portfolio that took time. We had to look at a lot of different opportunities to find those high science approaches that, you know, against areas of high unmet need where we, could, we thought we could really provide meaningful differentiation for patients that would make a difference. So that all took time to kind of bring together 
Um, but it was really great to, to be in a position of, of strength in order to actually be able to build this company. And so this is a dream for me to be able to co-found a company uh, and, and build it from the, from the scratch, you know, from the very beginning, um, set the culture, set, you know, decide on what assets you want to work on. And, and, and it was very important for us to have a number of assets. So we are really now gearing up to start running um, seven clinical trials in the fir- you know, after the first year of, of, of being a, a company. But it's really made the people who've joined Gossamer I've worked with for years. So it's a really established uh, team that has a great track record. Now, could you walk me through some of your criteria for how you think strategically? You, you've, you mentioned this briefly, but um, you're looking at novel targets it seems like you have a lot of orally available small molecules. So that seems to be a part of it. Um, and in areas where um, y- you think you can you know, really deliver a high effect size, like something considerably better than standard of care. That's right. Yeah. So I think um, some of the, our criteria is uh, looking at, you know, the, the biology, of course, we always start with, with that biologic rationale, the scientific rationale understanding how it could create a differentiated profile in a high end mini population. We have uh, focused on small molecules uh, out of the gate. We, have, we can do biologic uh, discovery and development, and we've also looked at biologics, but the ability to improve access uh, for patients uh, with orals, I think is, is really exciting and fundamental. I've spent my whole career developing biologics, uh, especially in the, uh, the autoimmune space. Uh, and it's, it, again, it's something that if, if patients have an opportunity to go on a safe, effective oral therapy that will be their preference. And we've seen this time and time again and how that's played out against, across multiple markets um, to really get these drugs to these patients and have them stay on these drugs and, and remain adherent, I think is critical. Um, so that has been some of our focus um, and, uh, and really against all different uh, immune-mediated disorders. So we have a program in asthma and allergic disorders. Uh, We have a program targeting pulmonary hypertension. Both of those programs have some validated biology. And so we um, think they do have a higher probability of success. And we wanted to find a couple of clinical programs to really jumpstart the company so that we could have positive data readouts uh, within a year of going public, that we could lower the cost of capital and continue our financing efforts for the more uh, novel, uh, somewhat less validated targets in, in our portfolio. Uh, we have a third program in IBD, uh, which is an area we know very well uh, that is not only addressing the adaptive and innate immune system, but also going after mucosal healing uh, that could be beneficial for UC, Crohn's disease, and potentially other GI disorders. Uh, and then we have a program within immuno-oncology that is addressing mechanisms of resistance, uh, targeting the innate immune cell uh, pathway. And so, um, and then some research programs behind that that I think could be coming into the clinic over the next few years to have that sustainable portfolio. That's kind of the luxury of starting with $100 million out of the gate. Uh, you can put together a real portfolio with some uh, kind of near-term, lower-risk type opportunities and a, f- and a couple others there where you can kind of swing for the fence, so to speak. That's exactly right. And, and so it's a, diff- it's a risk-balanced portfolio. And, uh, and then, you know, we were so fortunate to, to have that $100 million, uh, Series A in uh, January of, of, of 2018 we closed the Series B with another $230 million in July, really to continue to, um, you know, be able to enable us to execute in the, the manner that we want to do, which is really high quality uh, with a focus on timelines as well. Um, 
and allowed us to bring in those third and fourth clinical programs into our portfolio. So we were able to round out our clinical portfolio to some extent, um, and then enable us to go public, uh, you know, this year, and so uh, and, and raise another, you know, three hundred seventeen million. So now we have the financing to get us through a number of different inflection points um, in well into two thousand twenty one. So we're very much now focused on executing against this really exciting portfolio of clinical and research stage assets, you know, with a, a fundamental understanding of that immunobiology and translational um, medicine, and hoping to really make a, a, a difference in the lives of patients with these uh, very severe unmet needs. I know you were on the road of trying to take this thing public around the time of the government shutdown and the SEC was shut down. And I think that may have caused some, you know, near term anxiety, which, you know, is kind of old news at this point. But like you've kind of seen seen it all, <laughs> maybe not everything, but boy, you've, you've seen a lot uh, already. I like to say there's, there's never a dull moment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's so you um, can foresee and things you can't foresee. Now, one thing I do notice uh, when I read through your SEC filings, uh, and I think this is one for the women in the audience, I see you earning the same salary and same stock awards as Fahim, as your as co-founder. Uh, that's not always the case. He, he may actually have a little bit more shares in total holding, but it's very, very close. Um, how, how did you do that? That was the premise from the very beginning, that we were partners that we were going to co-found this company together. And it was really around that equality. And so, um, you know, I think it's, it's incredibly important um, for, for women to understand and realize and fight for, for these things in, in their careers and their lives. And, uh, you know, I'm so proud uh, to be in this position and, and, and so honored to be working with the stellar uh, executive team that we've built here at Gossamer, the, the, the employee base, our board. You know, I would say half of our employees and our board are, are women, and um, you know that's that's a really that you know it's it's very important for us to kind of continue to forge that path. So yeah, no, that's exactly right. Good for you. Don't let them push you around. <laughs> <laughs> Try not to. <laughs> and and uh, last thing, uh, Sheila, uh, what's your mom think of all this now that you've she's done? She's really proud of me. Yeah. No, she's. Um, She's a, a huge fan and supporter. Um, you know, I think she's, I think, you know, I'm in disbelief as well in terms of the opportunities I've had in my life. I'm very humbled by all these experiences and um, it's truly a blessing um, to have had all these experiences and to be in this position to actually try to be creating a, a company of this type of uh, size and scope. So she's a, a big fan. Um, we've come a long way since that uh, year off I took, <laughs> and, uh, and then of course leaving medicine. And so uh, she's a little bit of a poster child for me now, um, and looking to to help uh, to help uh, younger uh, people in their career decisions. She's still a practicing pediatrician in inner city Philadelphia um, in her seventies. Um, she continues to be a significant role model for me and. Um, you know, she, she's on the front line taking care of patients day in, day out. So, um, so yeah, that's, that's my mother. Well, and as physicians, both of you, I'm sure you will uh, you'll be very happy when that oral MS drug with the novel mechanism um, that you worked on hard um, hits the market and uh, starts helping people. Yes, very, very satisfying. Sheila Gujarati, thank you so much for joining me today on The Long Run. 
Thank you so much, Luke. It's really been a pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. Next episode, watch for a freewheeling hour-long conversation with Jay Bradner, the head of the Novartis Institutes for Biomedical Research. Don't miss that one. See you next episode.